0: You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting cityschurch.com. All right, so this morning we are in Psalm 37, and I want us to start by praying. Uh, Psalm 119, 130 says that the unfolding of God's Word gives light, and it imparts understanding. And that's what we want God to do In times like this. So, wherever you are as you watch this, would you just pray with me? Would you pray, Father, open my eyes to see what you have for me in Psalm 37? We ask this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so Psalm 37 is what's called a wisdom psalm, which means that this psalm is is full of, of practical conclusions about how to live faithfully before God in this world. And oftentimes, in in wisdom psalms, the, the way the wisdom is shown to us is by describing the righteous in contrast to the wicked. And that's the first thing that we just need to get clear here in this psalm. Because so much here, so much in Psalm 37 is said about the righteous and the wicked. We need to know who the righteous and wicked are. Okay, so who are the righteous, who are the wicked? All right, here goes. Not everybody is righteous. Not everybody is wicked. But everybody is one or the other. Now, you right now who are watching this, you are either righteous or wicked. And that most likely makes you feel uncomfortable. And ironically, what's what's uncomfortable about this binary simplification of humanity is that both the righteous and the wicked can have a hard time believing that's who they are. For example, there are people in this world who, who don't care a thing about God. They don't care a thing about God. But they're law-abiding citizens, they they eat at Chick-fil-A, and therefore they would never imagine themselves to be wicked. Okay, this is the good guy conspiracy. I'm a good guy, you're a good guy. Aren't we all just good guys? You know, wicked is a word for Hitler, not for me. Okay, this is this is the idea here. People don't think they're wicked. There are the world is full of wicked people who who never imagined themselves to be wicked. But then also, if you, if you are righteous and you hear me tell you that you are righteous, something inside of you might cringe a little bit. And, and that's, that's probably because you think of righteousness as, as moral impeccability, and you know that's not you, right? You you know what goes on in here, and and, and you you know you're indwelling sin, and you feel at home in Jeremiah 17 when he says that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. And so you actually, righteous person, you actually tend to think of yourself as wicked. And this is, this is ironic, right? You see this, there, there, there are the wicked people who think that they're righteous and there are righteous people who think that they're wicked or we maybe we make up some like middle category and we, we try to claim that. But we really just need to get this right. right? I mean, if we're gonna understand this Psalm, we have to get this right. Who are the righteous? Who are the wicked? What does God think? That's what we, that's what we need to know. What does God say about the righteous and the wicked? And so go ahead. And in your Bible, skip down to verse 40. This is the last verse in this psalm. And I want us to see this, though, before we look at anything else. Verse 40 says that God helps the righteous and delivers them. But why? And this is, this is the very last line in the psalm. Why? Verse 40, their last line, because they take refuge in Him, Because taking refuge in Yahweh is what it means to be righteous. That's, that's, that's the answer. In the book of Psalms, the righteous are those who take refuge in the Lord. And we have seen this. This takes us back to the beginning. It takes us back to Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 where we see that the blessed one, God's blessing is on the righteous man and the refuge taker because they are the same. The righteous are those who take refuge in God and the wicked are those who don't. The wicked are those who not only refuse to take refuge in God, but they live as if God is not real. This is the the practical atheist that we read about in Psalm 14, who is called the fool. The wicked person is the foolish person because they don't trust in Yahweh. The righteous person is the wise person because they do trust in Yahweh. And that's what makes all the difference. It has to do with your hope. It has to do with whether or not you trust in the Lord. And I want to start here because I realize that for everyone who watches this video, for you, church, all of you, you are either righteous or, Wicked, and I want you to know that you can become righteous. You can look at look at verse look at verse thirty-one for a minute. Verse thirty-one is a profound truth in Psalm thirty-seven. Verse thirty-one, speaking about the righteous, David says the law of God is in his heart. Now that's a that's a profound truth because this is a new covenant promise. The law of God written on our hearts is what the Holy Spirit does when we put our faith in Jesus. The law of God on our hearts is what it means to be born again. And that is what is said of the righteous in Psalm 37. So I just want to bring it all together. And I want to tell you that to become righteous, for you to become righteous, put your faith in Jesus To be righteous is to take refuge in Jesus. And you can do that right now, like in this moment, right now, as you're watching this, you can turn from your sin and you can hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the punishment you deserve for your sin so that you would have life. So trust him. Turn from your sin and trust him. Be forgiven. Receive the righteousness of faith. That's my invitation here to begin with. And for those of you who have done that, if you have done that, if you've trusted in Jesus, if you're righteous, if you've taken refuge in Jesus, welcome to Psalm 37. All right. This psalm, is, has all it has all kinds of wisdom for us, and I'm excited for us to look at just a few things here this morning. But first, I want to just mention um, uh, three different categories of statements in the Psalm overall. The three different categories of statements in these 40, 40 verses. First, we see there are descriptions of the wicked. I've counted there's 25 descriptions of the wicked. Second, there are descriptions of the righteous. I counted 36 descriptions. Of the righteous. Then third, there are exhortations to the righteous based upon both of these descriptions. And I counted twenty verbs in this psalm that tell the righteous what to do. But the thing is, these three different categories of statements in this psalm—they're they're, all—they're all mixed together. They're all just kind of yeah, like this throughout the whole psalm because Psalm 37 is an acrostic psalm, which means that each verse. Um, begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, as we read the psalm, it's helpful for you to know this is we miss this in English, right? If we could read Hebrew, we'd see it. But, but this psalm is not. It's not one of those like you know neat logical arguments. Instead, this psalm is a it's, it's an artistic presentation of wisdom. It's, it's beautiful the way that it's arranged. And so, what I, I want us to do is I want us to step back and looking at the psalm overall and kind of how it's all mixed together, I want us to look at at least three lessons here that I think are super practical for where we are. I think there are at least three lessons, there's more, but at least three lessons that we're going to talk about in this Teaching that I think are relevant and practical for us. And so um, let's just do that. This is what we're doing the rest of this time. Three lessons for the righteous, three lessons for those who take refuge in Jesus here in Psalm 37. In the first lesson, we see in verses one and two is that time is on our side. Look at verse one Fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So the command in verse one is to not fret evildoers because, verse two, evildoers will not last. Don't worry yourself over what will soon fade away. Now the positive principle here is that our concern or worry or fret, right, our concern of something should be proportionate to its last ability. Okay, another, another positive way to say it is that we, we should invest most in the things that last longest. That, that, that's the wisdom that's behind what David is saying here. He is convinced that if we, the righteous, if we only knew how non-lasting the wicked are, then we would not fret over them. You fret because you must think that the way things are are the way things will always be. So see, David is making a connection here between our anxiety and our misunderstanding of time. He's saying that the cause of our anxiety is because we have the wrong perspective on time and therefore the converse is also true. A remedy to our anxiety is to get the right perspective on time, which is what he's doing. That's what David's doing here. David is reminding us that evildoers, wrongdoers, the wicked who reject God, they will not eternally get away with their evil. They're not going to last. They are headed for God's judgment in the grand grand scheme of things. According to God's perspective on humanity in history, he will put an end to the wicked. That day is coming. And so what will bring us from this present moment to that final day? Time. Time. That's, that's what time is. That's what time is doing. Time is always moving. And this trajectory is always toward the last day when the wicked are judged and the righteous are saved. That's what I mean when I say time is on our side. Time, which includes right now and every passing moment, is only bringing us closer to our final redemption. Time is on our side. This is the way that Christians should think about our relationship to time. This is the main way that we should think about our relationship to time. And and the more, I think, the more that we are able to keep this perspective right in our minds and hearts, then the more at peace we will be. And, And to live in this world with that kind of peace about time is incredibly countercultural. Just think for a minute, just think how hard our world fights against time. Think about that. Everything from, from FOMO and YOLO in youth culture to plastic surgery and age resistant pharmaceuticals, our world is at enmity with time. the, The way of the world views time as always running out. But Christians, the way we view time is as always moving forward, always advancing ahead to the day when Jesus will make all things new. So take a deep breath, okay, Christian? Take a deep breath. Slow down for a minute, maybe. Listen, time is on our side. All right, now, lesson two. Lesson two, we see in verse 11, it's stand for what you stand on. All right, so one of the one of the repeated themes in Psalm 37 is this concept of land. The land, the idea of inheriting the land, of dwelling on the land, is mentioned eight times in this, in this psalm. Verse three, Trust in Yahweh and do good, dwell in the land. Verse nine, for those who wait for Yahweh shall inherit the land. Verse three, the meek shall inherit the land. Verse 22, for those blessed by Yahweh shall inherit the land. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. Same concept here of dwelling in verse 28. Verse 34, wait for Yahweh and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. So the mention of land here in Psalm 37, it's the most repeated concept in this psalm, and of course, the land that's mentioned here in the context of these Hebrew readers, this is the land that God had given them. This is the land that Israel possessed because of God's promise to Abraham. But what's really interesting here is that Jesus quotes Psalm thirty-seven eleven in Matthew five five. So Matthew five five. This is in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. This is in the Beatitudes. Jesus says, Matthew five verse five: Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. Now, Jesus says earth, and the words for land and earth are interchangeable in Hebrew and Greek. But when Jesus says earth here in in Matthew 5, he means something more than just the land of Israel. Those who trust in Yahweh, like the people of God, the righteous, the meek, they don't just receive the land confined to the geopolitical borders of Israel. But they received the land of the whole earth. The whole earth is our inheritance. That's what Jesus means. And this is the same thing that the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. The the Christians at the church in Corinth had been arguing about uh, their associations with different teachers. Remember, uh, some claimed Paul to be their guy. Others claimed Apollos. And they compared the two teachers and boasted about who they thought was better. It It was a silly conflict. And the way that Paul points out how silly this conflict is is by reminding these Christians what they owned. Okay, this is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 21. Let no one boast in man for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. He's saying don't boast about having Paul over Apollos because you have them both. Like In my house, I have a kitchen and I have a dining room. And I don't brag to myself that my dining room is better than my kitchen because they're both mine. (laughs) That, That would be silly. And see, Paul is saying the same thing applies to the entire world. David says, Jesus says, Paul says that we Christians are going to inherit the entire earth. Now, what kind of impact should that have on us in the present? It should give us hope for a place. Our inheritance of the whole earth doesn't loosen us from this earth now, but it actually compels us to go deep where God has placed us as we look forward to the new creation. See, God hasn't given us everything yet, but he has given us something. And now imagine our something that God has given us only expanding to include the entire earth fully redeemed. See, we start where God has placed us, but because we know our future inheritance, we have all kinds of hope for this place. It's like a little mustard seed and it's it's going to grow. For now, for where we are right now, God has given City's Church a place at 1524 Summit Avenue in St. Paul. And we're thankful for that. But it doesn't end here. We're, we're going to own all of St. Paul. We are going to own all of Minneapolis. And so... For where we are now, we're invested in these cities. We 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 know our inheritance when we look at these cities. So we can we can because we know our inheritance. We can stand for what we stand on. And there's a lot more that we can say about this. And I'm excited for us to get into it. But for today, from now, just look at verse three for a minute. David says in verse three, to dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. He's saying, stay where you are and live faithfully. That's the idea. And and this especially, now this makes sense when we think about time. When we understand time is on our side, all this begins to fit together. Gospel impact is meant to be non-anxious work. It's important. Gospel impact is meant to be non-anxious work. Work. And this is where we get the concept of faithful presence, faithful presence, which doesn't mean, to be clear, that doesn't mean that we just take up space and outlast everybody else. It doesn't mean that because in verse three, look what David says. David says in verse three, to do good. He says the same thing in verse 27, do good. The vision then is that we we, we we live right now faithfully present where God has placed us. And that faithful presence where God has placed us, it includes actively seeking to bless those around us. That's our calling as we dwell in the land. And that brings us to the third and the final lesson here. We see this. In verse 25, the third lesson is don't, don't just make it, okay? Don't, don't just make it. Look at verse 25. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. So th- these two verses are David's observation from his years of experience and wisdom. Okay, remember this is a wisdom psalm. Okay, so we can imagine what David is saying here. He, he's saying this as an old wise man, right? He's in his rocking chair, he's rocking. They got the youngins sitting around on the floor, and they're leaning in listening. This past week, I was reading. I, I read these two verses to my kids, and I did my best, like old wise man impersonation. You know, talking to to, to the kids. And, uh, and that's how we can kind of imagine David here. What, what, what does, uh, you know, old wise man David here, what, what has he seen? Well, verse 25, he tells us. God does not forsake the righteous. His children are not begging for bread, which means they're not, they're not destitute. Now, to be clear, this does not mean that they don't suffer. We've read the Psalms up to this point. they righteous, do suffer. The most faithful servant of all is hated without cost. David's observation says nothing about the absence of suffering. But he is saying that suffering does not have the final say. Affliction does not mean forsaken. And whatever the people of God must endure, they do endure. What? We're going to make it, okay? The people of God will make it. David confirms that for us in verse 25, but he doesn't stop in verse 25. Notice verse 26. He, the righteous person, is ever lending generously and his children become a blessing. Now, when I read this weeks ago, Thinking ahead to this sermon, I was struck by the leap that's happening here from verse 25 to verse 26. David is still telling us, he's giving us his observation, but he says something categorically different in verse 26. In verse 25, the righteous are not forsaken. In verse 26, the righteous are overflowing with generosity. In verse 25, the children of the righteous are not begging for bread. In verse 26, the children become a blessing. And in my Bible, as I was was reading this, I made a little note beside verse 25, and I wrote, we're going to make it. We're going to make it. And then I wrote a little note beside verse 26. We've made it. We're going to make it. We've made it. That's the difference between verses 25 and 26. And I wonder, what what do you think God wants for you and your family? This is a question for us. What do you think God wants for you and your family? Do you think that God just wants to squeeze you by with verse 25? Or does he want to give you verse 26? So much of the Christian life is hanging on. It's hanging on, man. It's just... You endure, you persevere. That's so much of the Christian life. God, hold me fast. Please hold me fast. That's the Christian life. At the same time, the joy is real. There are real blessings to be felt. Listen, life in Christ is meant to be good. It's meant to be good. And as I think about my own life, as I think about my own families, as I think about what it means for us to be a witness to the realness of Jesus, I don't think I can improve upon what's said here in verse 26. The vision of verse 26, I want to be generous. I want to be generous. I want my children to become a blessing. Like I, 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 want, I want to be a giver from the heart. And I I want my children to create ripple effects of grace to everybody around them. Like, I want this. I want this. Because God wants it. God doesn't just want our verse 25. He wants our verse 26. That's why there's a verse 26. He wants our verse 26. And I can say this with confidence because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is important for us, I think, to hear right now. For most of this entire year, most of this, for most of this entire year, because of this coronavirus pandemic, it, it has felt like we're all just in survival mode, right? We just all, oh man, we have we have all just pared down our systems, and we're just trying to get by. And that makes sense. I get it. We you have to do it. There, there, there are times when we must just get by and it's been been such times but we also need to remember that God has called us to more and we should ask him for that we should ask God for more And I want to be clear, again, don't don't confuse what I'm saying here with the prosperity gospel, which I hate, okay? The prosperity gospel is a lie from Satan that says that God wants you to have more stuff, more money, more material things, all the stuff that the world values, okay? That's not what I'm talking about here. The more that we are asking for based upon Psalm 37 verse 26 is to be rich in faith, is to have more of anything I can give more of. It's to be so overcome with the glory of Jesus that you pour your life out for the sake of his name and you'll go anywhere and do anything he wants you to. It's to slow down enough and to know that all of this is so much bigger than you, but it includes your children. And so you love your children with their little hearts and their precious futures, and you do all you can under God's sovereignty to point them to Jesus so that they will be overcome by him, just like you've been overcome by him. You ask God to bless you to become a blessing and you want that in your soul. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. You want that from your soul. God, do this. Give me more of that for your glory. That's the more we're asking for here based upon Psalm 37, verse 26. I want to close by encouraging you with this. Okay, 2020 has been quite the year. It has been, okay? And this pandemic has has affected almost everything. But don't let it shrink your faith, okay? Don't let it shrink your faith. Psalm 37 is for us a snap back to reality. And it's wisdom, the wisdom of Psalm 37 gives us helpful perspective. Time is on our side. Stand for what you stand on. Don't just make it, okay? There's more. So Father, help us, lead us. In Jesus' name, amen.